You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Advising clients who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness can be challenging as it requires careful consideration of a range of client circumstances, including their health status, financial circumstances and objectives, as well as estate planning intentions. In addition, there are complex superannuation, insurance, tax and social security rules to consider. I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me to discuss the most frequently asked questions relating to this important matter is Kim Guest and Linda Bruce. Hey, guys. Hi, Craig. Hi, Craig. So, Linda, let's start off with you. If we're going to be talking about the terminal medical condition, condition of release, we need to know what that is. So can you run us through the requirements, please? Uh, sure, Craig. Uh, first thing first is a conditional release that has new caching restrictions. And to meet the terminal medical condition, it requires two registered medical practitioners, and one of them uh, must be the specialist in this medical field. So these two medical uh, practitioners must have certified jointly or separately that the client suffers from a illness or has injured, uh, uh, incurred an injury that is likely to result in the death within a period. Now, this period is referred to as the certification period. This certification period must be less than 24 months of the date of the certification. And the certification period has not expired. If all those conditions can be met, then the client can satisfy the terminal medical condition of release. Okay, so that terminal medical condition of release, is does that have a nil caching restriction applied to it? Uh, that's correct. It's not subject to any caching restrictions. So that means um, client can access the uh, benefit in the form of lump sum or uh, pension or in a combination of both. Okay, so that, that's important. We'll, we'll come back to that later on in terms of how they're taxed. Now, a common misunderstanding we see with some advisors is that they must mistakenly think their client can only access super on grounds of a terminal, terminal medical condition. If the client holds like a life insurance policy through super that has a terminal illness benefit included as part of the, the, the conditions or features of that policy. But that's not the case, is it? It's not the case. You're absolutely correct, uh, correct, Craig. It's not the case. So as long as the client meets the terminal medical condition, um, as outlined earlier, then it allows the client to access uh, any of their accumulated benefits as well as any insurance uh, paid to the fund. But it doesn't matter whether the member actually holds a life insurance or not. Okay, so moving on to start to look at the tax consequences of accessing these amounts that were released under this condition of release. Now, often clients suffering a terminal illness want to withdraw some or all of their benefits from super as a lump sum to pay obviously for medical expenses and or to pay off the mortgage on the family home to obviously leave their, their beneficiaries unencumbered. So how are those lump sums taxed? 
Uh, so long the client takes a lump sum withdrawals within the certification period uh, specified by the, the, the doctors and the specialists, those lump sum withdrawals are completely tax-free, regardless of the client's age. Even the clients suffer from terminal illness in their uh, 20s, 30s, or 40s, it doesn't matter. Those lump sum withdrawals uh, are completely tax-free. However, just be careful though it's good news for the client and the family is sometimes they do survive the certification period if that's the case if the client takes the um, uh, lump sum withdrawals from the benefit that's already been set is uh, classified as unrestricted and unpreserved benefit they can still take money out but any lump sum withdrawals made after the certification period expires uh, those lump sum uh, will be subject to the normal tax. So if the client is under preservation age, we are talking about taxable tax element that will be taxed at up to 20% plus Medicare levy. Okay, and that look, that's a really important point. Unfortunately, CFS has seen members in, in that very situation where for, lucky for them, they, they outlived that certification period, but then subsequently withdrew some money out of their benefits that have been made unrestricted, non-preserved. And as a result, you know, that 20% plus Medicare applied. So, you know, if, you are, if you're not going to be withdrawing out lump sums after satisfying this condition of release pretty much immediately, if the monies are still sitting in superannuation for a period of time before drawing out any lump sum, you just want to make sure that they're still within that certification period. Uh, otherwise, tax may apply. Now, what if the client commences an income stream? So as we talked about before, new cashing restrictions, so we can take it as a lump sum, but it also means we can take it as an income stream, such as an account-based pension. Um, what's the tax treatment for an income stream? Um Two folds uh, here, Craig. So first thing first um, is the pension, a retirement phase pension. We want it to be a retirement phase pension, right? Because the earnings can be taxed um, uh, at a zero percent in the pension account. Uh, and the good news uh, is, yes, it is a retirement phase income stream uh, where the pension commenced under the terminal medical condition. Uh, the earnings are completely tax-free. That's good. However, if the client is usually um, they're young and they're under preservation age, uh, when they commence a pension and a terminal medical condition, uh, just be very careful though, uh, the taxable tax element of the pension withdrawals, uh, pension payments, uh, will be taxed at their marginal tax rate, but they do not get the 15% tax offset until they reach their preservation age. Okay, so the tax consequences there obviously are quite different. Um, to things like permanent incapacity condition of release? Uh, that's right. So for clients suffer from permanent incapacity and if they do commence the pension and if they are under the preservation age, uh, there is a specific tax offset, the 15% pension offset that can be applied to uh, the pension payments uh, in terms of the taxable component. Um, yeah, that, but that's only available uh, under the permanent incapacity where the clients uh, can, can meet all these permanent incapacity uh, conditions Conditions. Uh, however, uh, th th that's good for, for pension payment under the permanent incapacity. However, lump sum is different uh, under the permanent incapacity condition release. Uh, for lump sum, uh, there is a tax-free uplift uh, to increase the tax-free component 
but the remaining taxable component uh, where the clients are under the preservation age uh, is taxed up to 20% plus Medicare levy. Uh, it's not possible for client to take those amounts uh, completely tax-free uh, when it's paid as a lump sum and if they're in the uh, preservation age. Okay, so we have multiple podcasts, also a webinar and multiple strategic update articles on permanent incapacity. Uh, and so advisors, if you want to know more about permanent incapacity, certainly go and avail yourself of those resources. Now, sometimes we see people that have notified their, their fund that they're suffering a terminal medical condition, maybe to claim a terminal illness benefit under the life insurance policy sitting within the super fund. And then they want to roll over their benefit to a new fund. Now, that may be because the existing fund simply doesn't pay pensions. And you might say, well, what sort of you know public offer fund doesn't pay pensions? A lot of the times it's things like corporate superannuation plans and things like that. They're, they're certainly happy to have accumulation accounts within the fund, but they don't pay pensions. So in those kinds of situations... Um, if we do want to pay a pension, we need to roll over. So what happens there? We got to be super, super careful here, Craig. When the client meets a terminal medical condition and if they want to roll their benefit over to another fund that might suit them a lot better, we got to be uh, super careful because it can be rolled over for uh, cease for super law purposes. But if this rollover occurred within the certification period, it's not actually a rollover for tax law purposes. It is regarded as a withdrawal and a recontribution. So let's have a look. Uh, what happens is that the paying fund is regarded as if uh, the, the, the fund has paid a lump sum to the client. Of course, that lump sum can be tax-free because it's within the certification period, um, but it's regarded that the, the amount has come out of the superannuation system and landed in the client's hands. And then the receiving fund is treated as having received a personal contribution from the client. And most likely, the client will not claim a deduction for that personal contribution because in their mind, it might be a rollover, right? So this rollover amount actually will count towards the client's non-concessional contribution cap. Well, as part of the advisor strategy, it might be beneficial for clients to implement a withdrawal and a recontribution uh, strategy for state planning purposes and other purposes. However, we really wanted it to happen uh, with our control. We wanted it to happen the way we wanted it to happen. We don't want the client to roll over $1 million within the uh, certification period. All of a sudden, next thing we knew, the client has breached their non-concessional contribution cap. And this really is a trap that that many people are not of not aware of. So, are there any alternatives out there that we can think about? Um, potentially, uh, possibly, uh, Craig. Really depends on the situation. There might be a situation where the client has no insurance in the fund. They only have um, accumulated member benefits. And the intention is to roll it over to a different fund. Maybe they want to commence a pension. Uh, in that scenario, just simply 
do not notify the current fund and do the rollover, that would be a normal rollover, and then notify the receiving funds where the client wants the money to be invested with and notify the receiving fund, uh, hey, dear fund, I have um, uh, suffered uh, I'm suffering from medical uh, terminal medical condition. Here are the certificates, etc. And I do it over there. And it can be tricky though uh, if the fund, if the client does have an insurance uh, helping yeah, was, in the fund. I was <laughs> right? just going to say that you don't you don't want to roll over when there's there's insurance sitting there. So if you do have insurance sitting there, what's the options there? Yeah, it depends on the client's intention or the advisor's intention. Uh, the client might have accumulated. Um, uh, substantial amount, let's just say a uh, million dollars, and it also has half a million dollars terminal units cover, they do want the one million dollars to go elsewhere, then do what we mentioned earlier, roll it over to a different fund, um, and then notify the receiving fund about the condition, <clears throat> and leave enough money behind, continue pay, to pay the insurance um, premium if needed, and then make the claim um, and then subsequently, you might have the situation where that $1 million landed in a different fund and you have <clears throat> terminal units cover paid to the existing fund. Okay. So obviously that then leaves the member's benefit split between two funds though. Yeah, it, it's not ideal, but in certain circumstances, it suits client perfectly. They might want to keep that $1 million in the fund, in the receiving fund, and commence the pension. And then they might want to take this terminal units insurance cover out as a lump sum, pay for medical bills, pay down the mortgage. That might suit them perfectly. Yeah, um, yeah. There might be situations they might want to have a different fund for state planning purposes. It really depends on yeah. the situation. Okay, all great points. Now, often though, what happens is that people become aware of these rules after they've already notified the fund and already received the terminal illness benefit from the insurer. And then all of a sudden, you know, ah, oh, what do you mean we can't roll over? What can we do then? It, 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 it's really tricky from what we, we have seen, Craig. Uh, it, it's, it depends on the fund. Fund's governing rules depends on the fund that advisors are dealing with, uh, and the strategy could be quite different. So uh, why am I seeing that? So what do we have seen? Uh, in some funds, as soon as the terminal units payout is paid to the fund, and the fund will automatically uh, make everything unrestricted and unpreserved. Uh, in other words, as soon as the member claim successfully claim a terminal units in insurance, uh, the trustee will go, oh, okay, you have met the mm, terminal medical condition release. Now all your member benefit becomes unrestricted and unpreserved. If that's the scenario, we got to be careful because we are, if we are doing a rollover, Within the certification period, as mentioned earlier, the receiving fund will treat the rollover amount as a um, non-concessional contribution, which is have to be really mindful of the caps, and maybe we just simply cannot roll it over uh, to a different fund. And there are some funds out there, uh, not necessarily they will automatically treat everything as unrestricted, non-preserved component, just because the fund received a terminal units insurance payout, the fund will still require the member to come forward and tell them, uh, I 
me member, I want to access my money because I have a terminal medical condition. If that's the scenario, um, check with the member benefit. If it's still classified as a preserved benefit, uh, it's the likelihood of making an ordinary rollover um, is still there. It is still possible, but just double check with the fund. Uh, it is if the fund confirms it's ordinary rollover, then the, uh, when the receiving fund receives it, it's just ordinary rollover. It will not, most likely, will not uh, count towards the client's non-concessional cap. But you got to go uh, to the paying fund and ask them and ask them to confirm it is indeed an ordinary rollover. Okay, so. Talk to the fund uh, is coming across loud and clear. Make sure you understand how they're going to treat it if you do want to roll over. If you've already notified the fund, in a lot of circumstances, provide those insurance details for terminal illness. Um, if you then want to roll it over subsequent to that, you just got to be really clear on how they're going to treat it. Now, let's look at planning for death and estate planning issues. What happens to super death benefit if the client has met a terminal medical condition, condition of release? And the nominated beneficiary is a spouse. Surviving spouse can take uh, the super death benefit either in the form of lump sum or in the form of death benefit pension or a combination of both. Uh, nothing strange or unusual there. So if we're looking at a lump sum, uh, a lump sum option, uh, a surviving spouse is the tax dependent of the deceased member, so a lump sum uh, payment uh, will always be tax-free when they're made to the tax dependent, such as a surviving spouse. Now, what if the surviving spouse takes the death benefit in the form of a pension? Um, usually, in this kind of scenario, um, the um, deceased member might be under age 60, uh, and the surviving spouse might also be at age 60. And in this scenario, uh, we are dealing with taxable, uh, tax, taxable tax element of the pension payment. Uh, that's going to be taxed at the surviving spouse uh, marginal tax rate uh, with a 15% tax offset. Um, but as soon as the surviving spouse reaches age 60, the pension payments can be tax-free. Yeah. And that there's an additional little strategy there, isn't there? Because once a death benefit pension, always a death benefit pension. So if the recipient, you know, let's say terrible situation that someone in their, their mid-40s loses their spouse and they take the death benefit here as a, as a pension. Now, as you just said, they're under preservation age. They're, it's including their accessible income plus a 15% offset. But if they need more than the minimum, then in that situation, the strategy there would be to take it that that extra amount as a, as a commutation lump sum commutation amount because... That then, because it's coming out of a death benefit pension, will be a death benefit lump sum, and the ATO has confirmed that to us, and that will actually be tax-free. So a way to reduce the tax on that on that uh, death benefit pension would just make sure you only draw the minimum and everything else comes out as, as lump sums. Now, also, what about if the client has a self-managed super fund? Is there any special, any special things there given the flexibility of those types of funds? Uh, actually, there is, Craig. So that comes down to comes down to the availability are only available to the self-managed super fund uh, that they are able to move the existing death cover uh, into a pension account. Um, it's not something. Uh, as per the legislation, the, the self managed super funds are super, super special from that perspective. It's just from practice in practice. Uh, Big funds, 
uh, would be very unlikely to allow a member to have a discover uh, in the pension account or uh, move an existing discover from accumulation account into the pension uh, account in the big funds. So in reality, uh, this little quirky strategy uh, might only be available to the self-managed super funds. Um, so how does the work? Uh, let's just think about a scenario. Um, someone in their 40 years, uh, they have accumulated $1.5 million in the fund. And unfortunately, this person um, is um, uh, suffering from a terminal illness. Uh, and the fund also has a $2 million discover for this member. So in this kind of a scenario, what the client can do is to commence a retirement phase pension uh, after meeting the terminal medical condition and move that $2 million discover uh, to the pension account by paying the insurance premiums out of the pension account. Now, sadly, the member passed away and the pension automatically reverse. I should have mentioned, we nominate the spouse a reversionary beneficiary. Now the pension uh, reverse to the surviving spouse. And we all know, we're familiar with this concept, with a reversionary pension, is the market value at the date of a death that will count towards the surviving spouse uh, transfer balance cap uh, 12 months after the death. So the sometime after the death, the $2 million death cover is paid to the pension account. However, only the $1.5 million, let's just call it at the time of death, uh, it was still $1.5 million uh, just for simplicity um, purposes. Uh, then the $1.5 million come towards the surviving spouse transfer balance cap but the $2 million insurance payout post-death paid to the pension account is regarded as investment earnings. So in this situation, the spouse actually can keep $3.5 million in the pension account and only $1.5 million uh, will count towards the surviving spouse transfer balance cap. Um, so some of the key elements here we require a reversionary pension. We require the surviving spouse to be the reversionary beneficiary. And we require the discover to be held under the, um, uh, in the pension account by paying the insurance premiums uh, out of the pension benefit. Uh, it's just simply will not work uh, if the pension is not a reversionary um, pension. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting little strategy. You know, some someone passes away, the pension automatically reverts. That's the amount that counts towards the the beneficiary's transfer balance cap purposes. But then the insurance proceeds come in after the date of death, and so yeah, they don't count towards the transfer balance cap. I, I remember that was a bit of an issue when you know these rules first came in and got discussed a lot. And the ATO didn't seem to have a problem with it. I, th I think any sort of strategy that requires a person to die, they <laughs> <laughs> don't have too much of a problem with it, which sounds a bit crazy. What if the client doesn't have a spouse? I, their, their beneficiaries are their adult kids because the spouse is predeceased or divorced. What happens there? 
if the um, only beneficiary or beneficiaries are adult children, usually they are non-tax uh, dependent. Uh, we got to be careful here because there's a component called taxable on-tax element that might be created. Uh, we needed to deal with on-tax element where the super death benefit includes a life insurance payout uh, or a terminal units payout. Uh, and the client was under age 65 at the time of death. So where the super death benefit lump sum payment contains on tax element, we are dealing with up to 30% tax rather than the 15% tax. The 15% tax is applicable to the tax element, but in this scenario, we might need to deal with up to 30% tax. So just be very careful here. The tax might be a lot higher than we expected. Okay, so what does that mean from a practical perspective? Yeah, from practical perspective, if the only beneficiary or beneficiaries are going to be non-tax dependent, uh, just don't just ignore uh, the the insurance and, and the member benefit. So it might was well taking uh, everything out of the superannuation system uh, before the client passes away, uh, and maybe have it arranged and invested outside of super or alternatively uh, subject to the client's total super balance and uh, the uh, non-concessional contribution cap, the client can do a withdrawal and recontribution strategy, uh, but it's limited to um, up to um, small amounts such as $330,000. So taking the amount out uh, might be an option for many, many other clients. Uh, But Please just don't only focus on the tax consequences, though. Uh, there are situations where the client might want to keep the amount in super for state planning purposes, uh, because you know the state from state planning purposes. Uh, once the money is out, it can be challenged. It will go through the state where left in super, it might provide a little bit more certainty by nominating the beneficiaries uh, as a death. Through the death benefit nomination. Okay, how about young children? So under age eighteen or under age twenty-five and still financially dependent. Uh, they are considered as tax dependents, so that's good. Uh, they can take the de- super death benefit in the form of a lump sum because they are tax dependents, and the lump sum payment will be tax-free when made to them. And the children in this kind of a situation uh, can commence a child pension. Uh, however, the child pension must stop or must cease uh, before or when the child turns age 25. Um, but um, you got to be careful uh, with the transfer balance, cap rules, uh, etc. Um, but um, there are other things to consider as well. Uh, would the client be comfortable for client uh, for the child to have early access to the investment capital uh, once they reach age, uh, 18? Is there money? Uh, and, and also, who is going to manage the money? Who is a legal guardian? Uh, those kind of things needs to be considered. If the parent um, is Varied about this kind of issues, um, just encourage a client to seek holistic state planning advice. Maybe testamentary trust uh, is a um, appropriate vehicle uh, for this kind of scenarios for this kind of young children. Okay, thanks, Linda. Okay, Kim, we might now move on to 
some Centrelink issues. So if we've got a client that's being diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, I'm assuming that they're going to be able to qualify for some payments there. So if we start off with Centrelink payments, well, which ones there might they be entitled to? Yeah, well, the main payment um, for people who are underage pension age who, who have a terminal illness is generally disability support pension. And as disability support pension is a pension, um, it's got the same rates of payment and income and asset tests as the age pension, which of course is more generous than other payments such as job seeker payment. Um, and usually disability support pension can be quite difficult to qualify for. Um, but in the case of clients who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, as long as they've got a life expectancy of less than two years and a significantly reduced work capacity, then there's something called manifest grants of disability support pension, which is a quicker, more straightforward process, which allows um, people in that sort of situation to be granted disability support pension um, in a much more streamlined way. Um, so if they're in that situation, um, they just need to provide the required medical evidence and um, of course still need to meet the income and asset tests. And there's actually a specific claim form um, to fill out in that situation called disability support pension for a terminal illness form. Um, and under that manifest grant, um, as I said, they just need to provide the required medical evidence and then they're considered to have met you know, the, the medical criteria um, for disability support pension. So that's great news that, you know, that the claim process is generally quicker and easier for people in these situations as it actually can take months for a DSP claim to be processed. Now, if there is a delay, can they receive any other Centrelink payments um, while that claim is being processed? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, they can generally receive job seeker payment while their disability support pension claim is being determined and they call it job seeker payment provisional and while that process has got been going through where they're processing the claim um, the, the person gets job seeker payment without having to meet um, you know activity tests or whatever for job seeker payment um, and they just do need to bear in mind though that because it is job seeker payment they need to meet the income and asset tests that apply to that one which are lower you know than the pension ones um, and the rate of payment is lower uh, but if they are then found to be eligible for DSP um, they will be back paid yeah, um, if there's been any underpayment of payment while they've been on job seeker payment. Okay great to know. What about partners of the terminally ill client? What kinds of payments can they potentially receive? Yeah, well, if the if the partner is providing care to to their partner because they're terminally ill, they might be eligible for carer payment, which is you know a pension. So it's got the pension rates of payment and income and asset tests, which are more generous than job seeker payment. Or they, or as well as carer payment, they may be able to receive carer allowance, um, which is paid in addition to carer payment. It's not an income support payment. It's a bit smaller at one forty four eighty per fortnight, um, but they can generally be paid both carer allowance and carer payment as long as they're they're meeting those um, requirements of providing the required level of care. Um, when it comes to terminal illness, both carer payment and carer allowance can be granted if um, the client has um, in the terminal phase of a terminal illness and is expected to live le for less than three months. So um, in that sort of situation, they're generally granted without any further investigation. Um, but if, it, if it's a longer period, then they will look at that they're providing the required level of care. Okay. Now, if, sorry, if they don't qualify for care payment, I should just mention that um, because they're not providing the required level of care, for example, then they might be able to go into another payment like job seeker payment or parenting payment if they've got children 
Okay, so if we look at strategy implications for terminally ill clients receiving Centrelink, I guess what they do with the super is probably going to be a key consideration here if they're under age pension age. Yeah, that's true. Um, so the normal rules apply. Um, as we know, if the client is under age pension age and they've got super in the accumulation phase, then that money is going to be exempt from the income and assets test. So they do need to think carefully about what they do with their super. Um, for example, if they get a terminal illness insurance payment in their super account, if they keep the money in the accumulation phase, then it won't impact their selling payments. But if they withdraw that money, then it depends what they do with it. Um, if they put it into something like repaying the mortgage on their principal residence, then that's fine. That's an exempt asset, um, so that won't impact their payments. But if they put it in another kind of financial investment, such as a bank account, for example, um, then that would be an assessable asset subject to deeming. So they do need to, to think carefully about that. Um, the other thing to be careful of is income streams. So they may want to commence an income stream, such as an account-based pension, which is fine, but they just need to know from a Centrelink point of view, um, doesn't matter how old you are, as soon as you start that account-based pension, the balance will be an asset and it will be subject to deeming. So the amount that is put into that account-based pension needs to be thought carefully about. Um, sometimes advisors put an amount in the account-based pension that ensures that their assets are around that lower asset threshold to maximise the amount of disability support pension they receive. It just depends on the client's situation, um, but that's definitely something to be aware of. So all very interesting, right? I mean, obviously, we, we don't ever want to potentially have a client with a terminal illness kind of condition, but where they do, there's obviously a lot of issues to consider here. We've got, as we went through with Linda, got a whole bunch of tax and access issues. If we're rolling over to commence income streams, we've got to understand how those get taxed and how we can potentially reduce part of the tax by taking lump sums. But then, as you're saying, Kim, you know, also be aware of these uh, government benefit payments that are out there. And if we do start to take start of the, part of the members' um, benefits, including any insurance proceeds, as income streams, then that potentially impacts upon their entitlements for, for one of these payments. So um, a lot to think about, obviously, and at a very stressful and, and emotional time for a client. So uh, a really, you know, you're earning your money there if you're a financial advisor, I think. Um, so I think that pretty much sums it all up for now. Thanks, Linda and Kim. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.